You're listening to Cinepunked. I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson. This episode, Elephants. So this episode is something of a Cinepunked archival treat. It's a recording of a live panel discussion that we conducted for the Belfast Film Festival way back in 2016. In fact, this is the very first live event that we recorded publicly under the Cinepunked name. English director Alan Clark tended to work on television rather than in cinema, and that meant that for many years his work, with a few exceptions, the likes of Scum, uh, went underappreciated. In the last few years, the BFI and the BBC together have reissued his films to the home video and festival markets, allowing them a previously unthought of reach. In the 1980s, Clark made three films in Northern Ireland, Psychops, Contact and Elephant, all of which are discussed in this episode. Now, Elephant has gained a notoriety for its use of steadicam photography and stark style, depicting over a dozen murders on screen in under 40 minutes. It would go on to influence Gus Van Sant's film of the same name in 2003, itself a reworking of the Columbine Massacre in the United States. We explore the production and influence of Clark's Elephant and the resonances with Van Sant's film. So, so welcome to uh, Cinepunked. Uh, we are... I don't know how to introduce this. I've never thought of this far before. This is the first time we've done this with a name. The last couple of times we've done events, it's been just, hey, we're going to talk about these films. Um, so this is this is Sin. Wel- welcome to Cinepunked. Um, I'm Robert Simpson. I'm the host. Uh, and I'm joined today by Connor Smith. Say hi, Connor. Hey, how's it going? And Rachel Kelly. Hello. And our very special guest... Belfast Film Festival Chair and uh, former BBC employee, Kevin Jackson. Well, hi there, Robert. Pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. Um, rather excited to have you here because, unlike the rest of us, you worked with Alan Clark and uh, were involved in, in the film that's screening on a screen behind us, Elephant, as a locations manager. Um, I think the first thing to start off with this is actually, Connor, you and Rachel are both pretty new to Elephant. Um, how did you find it? Um, I I had heard so much about it um, and had an idea of what it was going to be. So I'm not sure how I felt about it the first time I saw it, um, but it's sort of been in my head all week, playing on this infinite loop, <laughs> the structure itself, just in my head. And I've had a chance to watch it again, and I just find it now so hypnotic and kind of overwhelming and um, beautiful, which is a strange word to use to describe it, um, but it is, a, it's, a, it's a real masterpiece, I'm glad I got to see it. Um, I think it's stunning in basically every sense of the word. I think it is stunningly beautiful, aesthetically beautiful, I agree with Connor, and when he calls it a beautiful film. And it is, it's strange to call it a beautiful film because it's such difficult watching at times, but um, you know, just aesthetically speaking, um, the, the, the camera work, the mise-en-scene, and just, the, just the, the fact that that's all allowed to do, all the speaking by itself, um, just creates this incredibly immersive visual experience. Um, but stunning also in the sense that sort of psychologically, it's like being smacked on the head. It's really <laughs> um, brutal. It's it's clinical. It's um, arresting, um, and just that the the portrayal of the violence in that film in such a dispassionate manner is quite stunning to me psychologically when I'm watching it and you sort of walk away from it. I've watched it a couple of times in the past week. You walk away from it and you kind of go, wow. Um, 
I haven't seen that done like that before and I actually can't quite parse that mm. um, it's it, it takes a while you kind of have to digest it and yeah I agree with Connor it stayed with me all week um, I can't really sort of shake it from my system because it is absolutely haunting and mesmerizing yeah I think the first time you just mentioned it sort of he takes time to digest mm. so it was a little bit shocking just formally at first and you get in your head around it and you're like figuring out the puzzle you're like okay so this is going to keep happening okay oh no he's not um, but the more it's in your head and the more you watch it um, the more the kind of the mood of it kind of uh, affects you rather than the kind of initial formal kind of idiosyncrasies I think it is, it is quite unlike I think almost any other film I've ever seen and certainly anything unlike anything else I've seen about the troubles it's for those who haven't seen it um, and who are listening to this uh, it's 18 murders um, in a 38 minute film and it's basically just the process of each killing each shooting shooting after shooting after shooting after shooting uh, all within kind of the general greater Belfast area I think I'm right in saying that Kevin are I? yes <laughs> um, and it is I, th- I think you're right you know it is quite hypnotic there is something quite beautiful about it I think every time I look at this now every killing I see in that, that those last frames of the bodies lying there I'm reminded of Francis Bacon paintings mm. um, and, and just that kind of strange fascination and, and, and beauty and that's suppose part of the thing now looking back at it is there's all these wonderful Belfast locations that, mm-hmm. that do and don't exist uh, and it's this little snapshot of, of the world you know a quarter of a century ago yeah the locations really really stuck with me in a way I wasn't expecting um I think it may be partly because I've seen Mark Cousins uh, I am Belfast recently and I've been thinking about the idea of what Belfast looks like and it's partly because it's a little bit dated it's sort of 1989 um, so it's kind of a version of Belfast I'm not massively familiar with just in terms of the structures and, and the way everything looks but this uh, deserted kind of urban feel to it um, it feels sort of like almost like a, one of those films where it's in the near future and population's been decimated and it's just like, you know, like a s- s- small bandits kind of patrolling the country. It's got, uh, you know, it felt like, you know, you could say in one sense, oh, the empty locations represent the emptiness of the kind of the people uh, sort of included in it. Um, but it's also the sense for me, you know, there's very little of other people in scenes reacting and there's yeah. very little sense. I mean, we do see cars and we, especially the opening scene, he walks past different people in the armor baths so it's a sense of okay this is being used and this is alive as a building but a lot of the scenes um, don't really have that and it feels almost like a version of Northern Ireland where the sectarian snake has kind of started to eat itself and there's kind of nothing left in the city except for these last few murder men and that might be a little bit of a strange take on it but that's really what I it's, it's, it's a Belfast that I recognise. I mean, I'm slightly <laughs> older, so <laughs> I do slightly. remember Belfast in 1989. And I mean, I, I do remember sort of the, the emptiness at times and, and the fact that, you know, there were times when you just didn't really um, go out. And I do, it, it's familiar to me. I mean, obviously, it's taken to the extreme, the complete stripping of all mm. emotional response to it, the, the complete... Um, the clinical um, presentation of the violence is is not necessarily something, but obviously that's that's for effect. Um, but that sense of it sort of 
being and, and I mean again you're going back to that idea of the elephant in the room where the title comes from um, it being this thing that is going on and that nobody's really acknowledging because I mean I do remember that time and it was just something that kind of faded into the background until it directly impacted you in some way and even then it wasn't the, the overwhelming likelihood was that it was going to be something that kind of tangentially impacted you um, it wasn't necessarily going to be something that had a major impact in the the sort of the continuation of your life um, so that that sense of it's just happening it's just going on and everybody's kind of ignoring it and as much as they can I mean that that felt very recognizable mm. to me um, watching it mm-hmm. I think it's a good point at which to, to get Kevin involved because I'm interested in kind of your impressions of it as a film because I mean you're somebody who's worked a lot with, with different films anyway so and then to talk about the locations because you were locations manager on this? Well, the impression we had initially, because we were used to working within a reasonably rigorous television structure, which was a script arrived, you blocked it out in in rehearsal, you scheduled it, you went out and you shot the script. Um, And the actors who were brought on board were loosely directed by the whoever was in charge, and at that time it was Danny Boyle. I had been in theatre up until the year before, and Danny had only just joined the BBC a year and a a bit before Elephant had had been made, and had made um, and directed three films and produced another film. So this was the first time, second time, that he was working actually as a producer with a separate director. And so we'd got used to Danny just going off and doing whatever he wanted to do, and, and they were different types of stories, but they were very much narrative tales. And in introducing us to Alan Clark, who, after all, had um, since the late 60s been working in television and creating quite a lot of studio plays as well as some location pieces, um, was a terribly experienced television director. And yet the whole feeling about the making of this film was a, a collaboration that I then became used to in later days, um, where film was made on the day and then later in the cutting room. It wasn't something, because there was no dialogue, there were, you weren't quite sure of the structure that was going to then be delivered to the audience. That For all of us, it was a little confusing. But because he was such an engaging character, what, what we ended up with was a man standing in front of us at the beginning of a morning and then a second time in the afternoon, discussing where we were, talking to an armorer about a particular weapon, looking at the cast he had in front of him, who were only there for that half a day, um, and talking to costume makeup, asking people questions, how they might feel a murder. There were two policemen with us at all time, one um, because of the armory that we had, and one who was a police liaison officer. And um, they were included because they had considerable um, knowledge of murder scenes. And it was a process that allowed him to then get into his head exactly how he would like to finish something. The beginning of it he already knew. He knew where he was going to start, he knew the people he was going to ask to take part in those shots, but the end of it for him was, how would you kill somebody with this weapon? And, um, and then he allowed himself to have the freedom to put the actors into that position and then just work it. And um, So we would spend maybe five and a half hours um, shooting one particular sequence, but it, the first three and a half hours was discussion. And that's the difference. 
working with the man was about making a film, even though it was going to end up on television. Everything before and for a number of years after that was all about how do we create the opportunity to, to get the, enough scenes done in a day that we can feel as though by the end of the shoot we will have shot the script. Mm. When you start with no script, it could start and finish at any time. And as it did in this case, we, we had um, two six-day weeks. Um, so that was 12 days in which we were going to kill 24 people. And when it came to Saturday, the final Saturday, it got to lunchtime, and Alan said, I think I've done enough. So he gave us the afternoon off, and we never killed the last person. <laughs> so there he is, you know. Bleak though it might be, there was a happy ending for one person. <laughs> um, so how far ahead of this did you start looking around at the locations, and how do you go about that process of picking them? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the strange things. It is this Belfast that isn't there today, but... There are very definitely identifiable landmarks within that. There are places that I know. Um, and, and so I'm curious. I mean, obviously, there's, there's a few that are quite close to the BBC, but you, you do go further away as well. So mm. can you talk to us about that process? I will, but I'm going to preface that by saying that this isn't the film we were going to make. This wasn't the film you were going to make? No. So what was? It was a piece that was to be about um, uh, RUC suicide. Now, I'm not sure whether it was the same uh, writers but a few years later, that was made, produced by Robert Cooper, and it was called Force of Duty. Um, and it was written by Chris Ryder and Bill Morrison, Bill Morrison being a contemporary of Alan Bleasdale and Willie Russell. And uh, Chris, who is a local journalist, and he's also an author. And we were, we were told that's the film that Alan was going to come and shoot. And so that's what we were expecting. And when Alan arrived and Danny introduced us, there's, there's a small... Um, group of people working in the production office, the line producer, myself as location manager, one of the um, the production assistant and the uh, first AD. We were introduced to Alan and, and then told we're not doing that film. Television terms, you book a, a crew in advance. This is not an independent film. So you have a slot that is when the crew is available and that was coming up fast. So it was a three-week filming slot that we had booked a crew for, and we were five weeks away from that, and we hadn't got an idea what we were going to do with them. So Alan spent a week talking to Danny, and I believe that Danny and he came up with a, this idea, which was going to be a landscape of brutality, and yet it was not yet fleshed out. So there was one morning um, Alan came from the Europa, um, a bit of branding here, and uh, he wandered across to us in the office and he said, I've got something for you. And he pulled out a sheet of paper and said, I've been working on this last night, I'm going to read it out to you and I want you guys to tell me what you think. Now that's the production office, it's not just talking to the producer, it's us. The guys who are supposed to help facilitate what he is going to do as a creative. And it started like this. <clears throat> a walks along the street, we follow him. A meets B. A and B walk along the street together. B kills A. B moves on, walks around the corner down the street, meets C. B and C walk down the road together for a bit of a distance and C kills B. C continues on the journey and meets D. Are you getting where I'm going with this? <laughs> <laughs> and we go, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And instead, and how long will this happen? Will be any? No, no, this is just a continuous chain of events. 
And so the question was, how does it end? And he said, I've no fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we, what we'll do is we'll just shoot the rap party. Everybody, all the victims and all the killers will be there and it'll just be kind of like a party. And so it was not really properly fleshed out. <laughs> and the question was, what do you think? And we go, that's, 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 that's interesting, Alan. <laughs> but I don't think, I don't like it. What do you think? And he goes, you know what? It's actually pretty shit, isn't it? I'm going to go away again. Next day he came back and he brought Elephant. Wow. And that was possibly Alan playing a trick on us, or possibly it was something which was just a test to see how we would re respond to what was going to be remorseless scene after scene of death. Yeah. Possibly, but he never would explain that. He was the most engaging and charming man. So the next day he came back with Elephant and that Danny wanted to make, that, that was the film he wanted to make. And it was inevitably still going to be about long walks, um, that required geography, landscape, barrenness is, is, was one of the words, um, bleak, and then he wanted a place where it would be appropriate for somebody to be found either in a workplace or in a domestic situation or in a casual environment, wherever it might be, it was somewhere that was perhaps safe and then somebody would die. So the investigation for locations was that was the brief, basically where, wherever there we can find an urban or domestic situation that is got a um, some kind of geography and some kind of world around it that would look ordinary, extremely ordinary, but be vacant as well, uh, was was what we had to seek. And because time was marching on, we also had to seek it quite quickly. And so I. We, we got into a, a, a car um, and we started touring Belfast and I immediately took him to the, lo the closest locations which as you said some are close to the BBC there's an old factory that was there which we used to use as rehearsal rooms for drama and um, we went in there and he loved the building he loved the exterior he loved the space and it is one of the early deaths in the film straight across to Ormo Baths because I knew it was a, a wonderful Victorian building and it gave you lots of cinematic opportunities but also the approach to it was very interesting because mm -hmm. Belfast is low rise and so you can look at a very long street and I knew that he was interested in streets we watched Christine and Road before and we've seen him working with contact where he was interested in, in wide spaces and emptiness and so that was inevitably a long walk that you could make to a building and then within the building lots of turns etc and it was clear at this stage because he'd said it was going to be his last film made on Steadicam he was going to shoot this in one take and then do a bit of coverage towards the end. So we um, spent morning and afternoon, and usually two or three times in the morning or two or three times in the afternoon, we'd stop at a burger bar because Alan ate hamburgers all the time. It was a passion of his because he was a, he was a, he was a, he's a man who used to have other things in his life that would um, uh, drive him on, and now he turned to a food junkie. Um, and uh, and we just followed a, a course, if you like. I took him to South Belfast, um, Rosetta area, where we found a taxi area, a taxi rank, um, and a nice office upstairs. And we found a, a wasteland with a little um, uh, building site. Um, we showed him, I suppose, over the period of two weeks, maybe 80 or 90 different places. And every time he would get out of the car and we'd walk around 
and he'd start, he'd put his hand up like he was the camera lens uh, on a steady cam unit, and he'd walk, 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 walk to where the, the murder would take place. And he'd finish off by saying, yeah, I could kill someone here. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a matter of kind of, yeah, it became, well, that's what we're going to do. Um, we could do 80 of them. We could do 30, well, however many. And it was simply a matter at that stage of choosing what were the most cinematic locations for him, whether it be a factory building or the playing field outside or a street that had an alleyway through to the back of a house or going directly to the front of the house down somebody's um, pavement. Daytime and nighttime, that was terribly important too because we knew we were going to be filming um, when we could only shoot in the daytime for half the day and therefore we were going to have to have either an exterior nighttime sequence, which can take a little bit of time to set up with lighting, especially if you're Steadicam, or you're going to use available light, which meant that it needed to have quite a considerable amount of available light, um, or you were going to go for an interior. And um, he was then in a position from the Polaroids and from his memory to choose and select and allow us to then go and get secure permissions. Um, the process was the most fun. It wasn't the, f uh, you, you got, I think like the film itself, we, w we as a team were worried about this repetitive nature of brutal killings. Um, but whenever you were actually going out looking for a place to kill people, it just became, well that's what we do. That's what this film is going to be. And you began to feel as though there was an, uh, an anesthetic quality to this horror that he was going to embark upon and um, it just became a practical experience. It's um, <coughs> quite a curious observation, I suppose, in some respects, because it is, you talk about this sort of antiseptic quality, and um, there is something kind of numbing about the film after a while. You know, you, you watch it and, and you see someone die, and at first you kind of care, you think that it's going to go somewhere, uh, and as time goes on, you gradually stop caring about why, you're just kind of curious to see where and how and how quickly. <laughs> However, I actually think, yes, uh, that was my experience on watching it, but I actually think the final killing in it is probably the one that I find most unbearable to watch. Mm. Uh, that's the bit where I actually, uh, the first time I saw it, I wasn't aware, obviously, that it was going to become um, quite so difficult for me to watch. But yeah, that's the bit that actually jolts me right back out of it again, because it's just the way he walks in. He walks in so calmly, and you assume that he's one of the killers. Mm right up to the bit where they put him against a wall and put a bullet in his brain and I find that really really difficult to watch because it's so stripped of emotion because he's just literally walking in there like a robot and standing in front of a wall and dying um, so yeah I, I have to say yeah I agree with you but that's part of the power of it as well mm. though isn't it the fact that um, it, it, it does kind of numb you to the, the sort of re repeated killings, but yeah, then that last one, I don't know whether anybody else experienced it in that way. I mean, that bit for me was the bit where it actually shocked me straight back out of it and actually made me feel almost sick because I find it so It, d it does unbearable. throw you that one, I mean, yeah. th because there is a shift, because because as you say, he is so casual as he walks in there. Mm. He's, he seems quite confident, seem, they seem like they're friends. Mm. Um, and maybe they are, and maybe this is the thing, but he, he just takes that moment yeah. just in hand and you know, there's no protest. There's no protestation about nothing. it. He, he clearly knows mm -hmm. what's happening. Yeah, there's and nothing without even a whimper, without even a blink of the eye. He just stands in front of the wall and dies, yeah. which I just find really much more difficult to watch than the, even the guys that are running away because there's something you can identify with in that. Um, there's something you know that that's human, yeah. that's that's recognisable. But this is just completely. It's so stripped that it's it's just so difficult. 
to watch knowing that it's going to happen. Um, so yeah, incredibly powerful way to end it because I'm actually physically sick by the end of it because it is just that difficult to watch. It, it, interestingly, um, of all of them, because as I say, it had been a terribly collaborative process, when he rehearsed that, um, we, had, we had been filming for a number of days and this was in the Rothmans factory, which is uh, in the old Rothmans factory at Carrickfergus, which is a wonderful, huge building. It no longer exists. It, it's, it's now a, um, a PSNI training centre and had become an RUC training centre. But it was completely empty. And as you can see from, we used it a lot. Mm -hmm. um, we used the corridors a lot. Um, we killed somebody in the toilets. We killed somebody walking across the whole of those floors, or as you say, the final one. Um, we used the playing field was there as well, the football field outside. And that was the one which was so, so different, as you rightly say. Mm -hmm. um, there was some discussion on the, about disbelief. You know, you asking us to actually take on board because we were sucked into the um, the process of being able to be critical about how Alan was going to stage things because he required it of us. Um, but I'm not saying that that was a discussion that was broad. It was just, oh, I think he's got this one wrong. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. this 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 won't work. Um, and it just was because it it, it felt sort of like this complicity between the killer and the victim um, was something which just didn't chime with the, everything else we'd done because they, the victims were unaware until the very last minute that they were to become victims. Yeah, it's, it's actually, the, I mean, for me, the impact of it is, uh, is just kind of devastating. Um, yeah, it's, and I, yeah, I completely, it, it does, that's, that's why it's so shocking is that it is so completely, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a film that's completely stripped of, of emotion and context and uh, response and cause and effect in general, but, but that actually taking it to that extreme, um, I think really, really powerful. But without a script and therefore not knowing where Alan was going to finish his film, mm. and mm -hmm. because we shot 23 of these and there are 18 in the finished mm -hmm. piece, that could have been in his mind that that was always going to be the way he would like to finish off. But whenever he would have taken it into the cutting room and he and Danny would have talked about it, and, and Don O'Donovan, sadly no longer with us either, <coughs> who cut it, um, was a staff editor who didn't do an awful lot of drama, <coughs> but he did an awful lot of news and documentary, and therefore would have been somebody who had a very strong eye for this type of material. I wouldn't have been at all surprised if they felt, well, that is so different. Mm -hmm. That is the one we're going to use last, and not necessarily that it was Alan's initial plan. I think you start to care because there's a narrative that you read in with the two people as well, you know, because you, they do seem like they're okay with each other. There's a journey that they're taking together, and there's a third man, and you do kind of instantly assume yeah. they're bumping him off, mm -hmm. and he's waiting for them, but it, it does play back with those expectations, but you start to care. And I don't think you really do care properly until that point. And that's part of the thing, I think, is, is that you you do get numb to it. You do start to accept it. But I also get the impression that that was my vague recollections at the time. You know, I was only a child, but we kind of had got numbed in this country to what was happening. You know, we kind of just accepted that uh, there's another report in the news tonight. Somebody else has been shot. And, and this film, unlike anything else, does it very well. It doesn't tell you if these are nationalists or loyalists. You know, you've no idea what they are. It doesn't matter. They're just murderers because that's what Northern Ireland was full of at the time, at least if you, you read the news reports. But he'd done that before. I mean, he, he, was, he, had, he, 
he had he did go through phases. And they were, I mean, incredibly intelligent, very smart, very um, politicized man. But Christine had been made just a couple of years before, and had been transmitted in I think '87, following on from Road. Uh, I think at the same time, those two films where he was using the Steadicam technique considerably. Christine was again this um, journey of a young girl going through a very ordinary estate with a plastic bag, visiting her friends' houses, um, going into kitchens where mums might be and the television was on with children's television, and delivering um, Class A drugs. And you'd see them shooting up. And that, Well, they wouldn't see them shooting up. They would actually just take delivery of them. But you did follow this girl in a relentless way through a very ordinary set of circumstances without there being a commentary on this is good, this is bad. In fact, she was... It was the treatment of it was just like delivering a bag of sweeties, mm. and even right at the end, you know, we just finished with the girl just sitting there, whacked out on a bench. He he had got into his head this sense of people allowed shocking things to occur in the most ordinary of circumstances because either they don't want to see it or they want to stay away from it, but it does happen, and this was a incredibly extreme version of it by shooting Elephant as opposed to Christine which was something um, which again you could consider was really boring until you realized actually that's what's happening yeah I think the, the ordinariness of Elephant is part of what gives it a sense of like dilation um, of these things happening in these spaces and um, people entering sort of other people's homes are places of business or just sort of general cafes, places where people would just go day to day, you know, in the places in the film aren't, or don't seem to be marked as particularly sectarian or particularly related to kind of um, criminality in any way. And that, that's part of the, why it kind of gets under your skin, the sense of um, the absence of safety. Really. Also. I think because the title, and, and I can't tell you how they came up with the title, um, regardless of um, you know the attributed sort of Bernard Clafferty mm -hmm. sort of elephant in the room. However, if you consider that you were observing this, it's almost as like the world is behind the camera lens. In front of the camera lens, there is just a victim and a killer. And so the empty space, the, the sort of negative space that he creates in almost every single one of the killings, apart from something like the football field, or as you said, very early on when they're walking through around the Ormo Baths, gives you a sense that this could still be a populated room or a populated house or a populated street. It's just these are the people who don't want to know. These are the people who let this happen all through their daily lives, but they just want it to be somebody else who's going to be the victim and not them and they will not want to recognize the killer. Which is why I think quite a lot of it, you know, the camera behind, where we're following a, um, a, a killer to some destination, is again a sense that we can see it happening, but we don't want to be involved. Uh, <clears throat> I actually find the, um, the football sequence the weakest in the film. I think there's just, that's, that's where there's the only dialogue, really. There's just a couple of lines that... And again, it just seems to set out against everything else, and... I don't know. I don't know what to make of it, but it just falls flat for me every time I watch it. I mean, part of it is the distance as well. He's got a very big wide shot there, mm. and usually what we're doing is we're we're following somebody, or somebody walks into frame, and and then mm. we go with them. And there he starts with a wide, and um, we see all of this activity, which goes on for 
quite some time before um, one of the characters, is Paddy Rocks, um, uh, walks into frame and then and and then delivers a line of dialogue to somebody who's still kicking the ball around. He passes the ball back to him, and then there is a a chase, a very brief chase, and everybody else runs off. Quite right, is a very different style, but I think it starts off visually mm. in in a way which which jars with the rest of the work that he does in the film. It's quite disturbing though when you think about that because that's almost like we actually want to be right up there with the killer for it to have its effect. Whenever we're removed, we start, our interest is lost, our kind of... Well, for me, I think, yeah, I, I, I do tend to agree with you that it's it sticks out for me. Um, I'm not sure I would necessarily have called it the weakest section. Um, I mean, there's a couple of them which I find a bit more kind of not forgettable, that's the wrong word, but they don't quite stand out as much. Um, but I think for that one, um, for me, it's the one that kind of most closely references other work that's been done um, on The Troubles, just purely because it's a format that we can recognise. Mm. It is slightly narrativized to that extent. And, you know, we, we have um, at least ca some kind of human anchor there in a way that we don't necessarily have with the other ones um so for me that's that is probably the one where you know this actual human reaction where he screams shit and runs for mm. it um yeah that's much more like other uh narrative work i've seen about the troubles so i can sort of see where you're, you're coming from here it does kind of it, it kind of separates it from the others in the sense that the others just give you no opportunity to to kind of experience that level of, of, of human connection, maybe? Well, we've all seen, I mean, the film festival this week has screened uh, Cy Warriors and Contact as well. Have we all seen all of those? Captain, mm -hmm. you have, I'm sure. I have seen Contact. Funnily enough, I it, I saw Cy Warriors when it first came out and I haven't seen it since, and so I didn't watch it this, this, this festival. Okay, well, I think we've all seen, we've all seen Contact now. Um, Contact's kind of interesting as well in in that sort of relent, in, in that sort of removal, I think, of um, explanation about things at times, it, mm. it, it seems to sort of distance itself. It tries to look a little bit more objectively, I think, at what's happening in Northern Ireland, even though it's very clearly um, the focus is very much on on the British Army rather than sort of the, uh, the sort of the, the Republicans or often bandit country. Well, there's yeah, I mean, it's in common with elephant there's no hand holding with contact it's just presented this is what's happening keep up or don't um sort of impose your own narrative on it or or kind of keep up with what's what kind of what you're being presented with um or or don't we're just going to present this to you in a way that kind of makes it visceral makes it real um makes it almost experiential because yeah you're forced into that situation if you know if if, if they don't know what's going on you don't know what's going on they've only got very limited information and yeah it's psychologically very difficult to, to kind of um, to be in that position. Um, I did find contact hard to follow at places, um, and I think that's part for me of the success of it. Mm. Um, um, I don't know. In, this is not a very well formed thought, but for me, the experience of watching Contact, I felt like it was a better Troubles film than Elephant. Although Elephant, to me, is by far the superior film. Um, and I don't know, I mean, working through my thoughts on that, I think it's because of the perspective, um, the perspective of the narrative, effectively, and this perspective of who's telling the narrative. Um, and I do, I, I tend to have a little bit, uh, the success of Elephant 
for me is that it never attempts to simplify um, anything. It, it decontextualizes the murders, but it doesn't try and narrativize them in a way that makes you pick a side. It's, you're, it's presented to you completely stripped of any kind of context, any kind of narrative. It's just murders are happening and they are being allowed to happen. And that's the power of it. But for me, it's also, to a certain extent, um, a weakness to it because you know it is not a situation that can be simplified like that. I mean, there is no way of understanding the situation without that contextualizing narrative. However, um, the it's also you know conversely the power of it. So it's kind of a it's kind of a, a loop for me that I can't quite get myself out of. Um, with uh, contact, it's the the position is um, of somebody who is not of the area where they're they are being placed into an area, a hostile area, which they don't understand. Um, and that feels like a more natural position for Clark as a filmmaker to take on Northern Ireland, um, which is not to say, obviously, that, that somebody who's not from Northern Ireland can tell stories about Northern Ireland. I think in many ways, you know, it, it escapes the kind of sort of uh, pained navel gazing that, that goes on when people from here try to tell the story. So it's so terribly complicated you couldn't possibly understand. Um, but, but it also brings in that element of the tourist gaze, I suppose, which is unavoidable, uh, whereas the tourist gaze in contact works incredibly well. It's lost in my scenery in that. Oh, well, yes. I mean, th in terms of the aesthetics, yes, but also in terms of the narrative positioning. Um, but yeah, it's 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 one of those films. I mean, I I did I find it powerful watching, but again, um, yeah, the 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 power for me comes from the fact that it completely refuses to lead you. It, you're you're basically you're forced to make your your own narrative and draw your own conclusions from it. Which it's yeah yeah so it's very again a very brave piece of filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously different levels of, of similarities between Elephant and Contact. I think Elephant is like you say sort of superior. Um, mostly because, like you said, Contact has a bit more narrative character stuff going on. But the experience of the platoon commander in Contact kind of felt like me, what would, what would it happen to a person or what would their state of mind be if they had to go through like all of the sequences in Elephant? You know, because everything in Elephant is sort of segmented. Um, but in Contact, it has a similar level of kind of repetition and the numbing ordinariness like interspersed with kind of horrible violence you know these um scenes when they're he's explaining the mission and they're all kind of just sitting there in this like, slightly run down uh, room and they all kind of look bored and um they go out there and it's the same thing it's the same thing same thing someone else gets blown up and then he goes back and then they go back out again it's the same thing same thing and someone else dies and he <laughs> has to go through that you know and it's it feels like um, whereas Elephant was sort of like uh, giving you a look at the pathology of the people who do the killing, that kind of numb robotic soldier kind ofness. Um, in some ways, contact was kind of like the psychology of the people who had to live through the killings. In a way. I, I would speak up for Alan here a little bit to say that he came to Northern Ireland to make Elephant, uh, and Danny um, very much wanted him to make it, and. Uh, the BBC felt that it was strong enough to be made, but the mistake is that he he, he didn't come to Belfast to make a film about the Troubles. Mm. <clears throat> he came to make that film, which is about um, 
how easy it is mm. if you make the choice to kill somebody to go ahead and do it in any environment. And this was not a story which was about um, what had gone on for so many years at that stage, tw tw nearly 20 years at that stage in Northern Ireland. The fact is that it wasn't. He had made films about Northern Ireland in the past that weren't made here, or had Northern Irish issues associated with them. So it's very easy to be able to say that that elephant is about Northern Ireland. But he cl he clearly does not show you Northern Ireland. Mm. He shows you streets and architecture, and he mm. puts people into contemporary costume, and he puts handguns and um, shotguns into their hands. But what he doesn't do is is declare where we are. Mm. Contact, and I think this is what I think to say uh, to add to what Connor is saying the fact is that what we have is that a lot of anonymous people who can blend into a crowd and all they have to do is carry a lethal weapon and step up next to somebody and shoot them dead a soldier on a patrol in a place where the whole world is upside down and killing is taking place by these very anonymous people is wearing a target on the back because they're wearing a uniform they're traveling around in vehicles that are, are identifiable, they are at all at risk. They're heavily armed, and they may well have their own violent um, uh, tendencies, but they are standing in front of potential killers on every day, and they're in putting themselves into danger is the most obvious target. So I think Clark was probably very clear that what we're looking at there in, in that film that preceded Elephant was a group of people who were putting, putting themselves in harm's way because they were required to. Hmm. It's interesting actually reading some responses um, from people who watched Elephant without any contextualizing information at all. Um, and yeah, it, it is, it's very clear that that kind of universality um, of the message is, yeah, it, it, it's, it is a very powerful message that, that can be read completely divorced from any sense of, of the, the, the troubles as being the, the, the narrative behind it. Um, and I suppose, yeah, I mean, I don't want to preempt Robert, but I suppose that's why Van Sant was able to kind of um, use it as the, the sort of the, the motivating or the, the yeah. sort of the primary source well, for his take on, on, on violence and, and violence that exists within and around us almost invisibly. We'll get into um, Van Sant's elephant in a couple minutes. Sorry. Um, no, 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 you're quite <laughs> right. Cause, I mean, the thought's there and there's, there's, there's natural kind of things, but I do want to kind of also mention Psy Warriors because... You know, it's the other one of Clark's films that is ostensibly about Ulster because it mentions Ulster several times, and then it's got Colin Blakely as a as a soldier. And Colin Blakely's a banger man originally, um, and a great actor in it. Uh, and and Cy Wars is interesting because actually it feels more like he's placing a judgment in that film on on the way that the process worked. It's about the British Army and their psychological warfare techniques. This was happening at the same time. You know that I'm with sort of internment and things, uh, and there's some sort of relation to that, and the way that they get their confessions out of people and that information. And as as we were talking before this, mm -hmm. and I, I completely missed this point. This was broadcast I at the same time that the hunger strikes were going on. Yes, to the extent that it, it, it was the very day that um, Francis Hughes died, and that it was broadcast, and there were only a week earlier Bobby Sands had died. And um, it, nonetheless, they they did broadcast it, which is possibly a um, possibly a brave thing to do um, but because it was not directly about Northern Ireland um, it but mm -hmm. yet it was as you say after internment and with so many other so much so much complexity taking place it it is it, the timing of the of the broadcast was quite extraordinary um, 
But also, I, I have to say, whenever you, I'm just going to look at Alan Clark's use of work. That it's a studio piece, mm. and it's a beautiful studio piece. It's piece. It's minimalist, and it's got um, a considerable quantity of depth to it. It, it. They strip everything out of the studio, and at that time, the BBC, and indeed um, before the ITV and Rediffusion, etc., were concentrating on studio drama, and there was a deliberate um, movement at that time to retain studio drama as being the core drama that the BBC did their playhouses and their, their theatres and whatever it might be so there was a lot of adaptation of novelists and, uh, and theatre um, uh, pieces that were going into studio and it was at the time when the movement was going to be like Channel 4 coming along taking things outside onto location but there was a determined effort to try to use the studio space in a, in a, in a much more artistic and creative way Alan was one of those great people at stripping something back and just putting things in there that were going to be actors and performers. And you know you've got these cages, if you mm. like, and you look at these images. He, he could work in the exterior world very beautifully, but whenever he was in a studio, he could also create what was an artistic and creative space for the performance to take place in and for the camera to enjoy that experience. I mean, it's beautifully shot the way that um, he uses the camera with that. He's not afraid to have barriers between the actors and the camera lens. So you've got these bars of the cages going down and you kind of look and you can't even see the eyes because the bars are just in shot. And what it ends up giving it is this sort of equality of a scientific experiment. You know, it's like those old graphs you see in, in old books where you've got the grids and, and the models are in front of them. And that's what it is. It's, it emphasizes that science element, I think. Labyrinths. You, you've, you've watched this this week... Haven't you? Yes. 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 <laughs> don't worry. I doubt myself there for a second. Um, yeah, I think it's it seems more obviously studio than the other ones. Clearly, when you sort of look at all three together, um, I like. You're right about the science kind of exp uh, lab quality to it, which I didn't really think about it. It does have a science fiction, like futuristic mm. um, kind of feel to it. All that white. Um, I think that one of the things that it shows with other films is a sense of altered reality of um, the pressure of being a person in this um, strange uh, reality that's been kind of created by conflict or created by the, the kind of whatever scenarios that are political and uh, religious that are happening at the moment so it's uh, the characters are placed in these environments where um, they can't really be proper people and you, you see in um, Psy Warriors, the more it goes on, the more you realize, oh, you, you think that they're just prisoners, they're actual people who are suspected of, of having committed some sort of crime, and it goes on, you realize that they're actually taking part in a kind of experiment. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it in comparison with the last scene in Elephant. Um, in Elephant, well, we talked about um, the victim and the aggressor kind of walk together. And it's almost a sense that the victim is going to be complicit, and they're both locked into this weird um, uh, psychology or weird cycle um, that has taken over both. And in Psy Warriors, you see, oh no, yeah, this is horrible, but people signed up for it. Uh, it's this kind of machine that creates monsters, you know, and, and there's that speech at the end of Psy Warriors by the candidate who's been kind of groomed to, to head a basically assassination squad, um, black ops sort of thing. And he has that suit at the end where he talks about um, 
how he's been changed, but the military psychologist who's in charge of it, he hasn't been changed. So it's almost like uh, these scenarios create these uh, awful cultures that in turn reproduce reproduce inhuman sort of tendencies. And I know at the end of Cy Wars he has the speech and he like sort of um, rejects it, which felt I think he's supposed to be rejecting him. He throws his hat down. Yeah, I, I don't get the impression that he's joining the army at that point. I think that's, that's him kind of walking off to, to raise bees. <laughs> felt felt a little bit um, thick, but it felt a wee bit artificial, a little bit stagey or something. Um, because you, you, these people do exist and they don't always uh, hand in their nose at the end of these things. But I think you've got other characters in that. I mean, there's the, there's the woman who's kind of in there who ends up kind of liberally getting on board with Mein Kampf. Oh, that's you a, know, she's, she's feeling really enthusiastic. Like, that's great. I'm going to remember that quote. I'm going to do that things. Quote. That's Hitler. <laughs> that's going to my fridge. Um, I mean, I think what I find interesting about these films, about all three of the films, is that this is a, a British filmmaker who's making films that are in some way seen as troubles films and I don't think they're entirely sympathetic to the British end of things but they're not exactly kind of they're not playing into that typical trope of troubles films which seems to me to be a kind of um, Republican struggle story that's always the underdog it doesn't feel that that's quite what these are doing and it feels that there's a slight bit of judgment and questioning about the process and I think the narrative that we're told in this country often sort of assumes that the British is purely an invading force, and there's no questioning about that. Now, that that's maybe interesting to kind of see where how you respond to that. Uh, I'm worried about getting political now. But yeah, I, I'm worried about getting political now. Um, again, I'm going to just, I mean, I, difficult for me to answer that. I, or that's fine. Difficult for don't any, have an answer. No, I suppose, no, difficult for any of us to answer it as people who have been raised here. Yeah. Um, and we can't sort of step outside of that identity. Um, I, I'm just going to refer back to, I mean, all the reading I've been doing around it and different people's responses to the film, people who have been, because I mean, a, a lot of American responses to it um, and people who have um, not necessarily come to it with contextual knowledge um, and have been quite, you know, oh God, that was Belfast, was it? Okay, fine. <laughs> um, and their response then has been to assume that it's IRA killings specifically IRA mm. and they don't have any necessarily any other contextualizing information there to, to suggest that it might actually be you know it there were two sides doing killings in Northern Ireland so but yeah, that's interesting because I, I think that must fall into the, the tropes that are kind of peddled on, yeah. on, the, on the Northern Irish story yeah yeah um, is that you know it's the IRAs the ones that are kind of raising up with the guns and it's the yeah. British army that are coming in and kind of yeah. shooting them down so whereas actually we know it's com- more complex so if than there's that. not a uniform on the person doing the killing then it must be IRA um, is kind of I mean again yeah I suppose that gets me back to that that sort of idea of that very simplistic narrative that gets recycled and um, y- yeah I suppose going back to what uh, Kevin said it's, it's a stronger film when it's not a troubles film if you watch it as not being a troubles film, you get a much stronger message from it. Um, and these people are watching it as as a film that does not necessarily have that context around it. They're getting this this very anti-violence message um, when they watch it as a film that is about the troubles. Then they are simplifying the message to an extraordinary extent, which 
very interesting actually what is what does that say i don't know i i, I don't know i haven't fully formed a thought um, on that <laughs> i think i i mean i've fallen into the same trap that i suppose a lot of people do is that i read it as a troubles film because i know it was shot here it was made here and because everyone refers to it as a troubles film and because there's a couple of we know that Irish accents in there if they didn't speak i would not necessarily see it as a troubles film but yeah, well, they they instantly kind of the Put Troubles archive has claimed that it's a Troubles film as well, so oh, it's, yeah, yeah. But it's, 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 it's those kind of irrevocably now associated with it. Those voices make it about here, yeah. Mm. Whereas otherwise, you do have a film that's about gun crime, I suppose. Which it's I know about gun crime, it's about violence. Violence, mm-hmm. it is. It's, it's not. Yes, it's not just gun crime. Uh, yes, if 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 it had been shot in Colombia with Colombian actors, it would have been about drugs, mm. and we would never have seen a single drug. But that would have been it. It would have been mm. drug lords. That's obviously what it is. It's corruption. And Elephant doesn't smack of corruption, but if you put it into a different context and you reshot the film in, in, in a different cultural background, you would start thinking of it in a different way and you would label it in a different way. And because the filmmaker hasn't labeled it, we are making an assumption, and that assumption is based upon our knowledge of where it was made. And therefore, quite interestingly, people who are coming to it who won't who suddenly are told it's Belfast are assuming, oh, IRA. It's kind of, no, there's no statement of that. So what's, so it's, a, it's an interesting judgment of the humans that are watching it as to how they associate with the history of this place and the violence that has taken place here. Um, Alan was very much an anti-Thatcher person, and um, as many um, writers and, um, and creatives were, in fact, quite a lot of people except those who voted for Thatcher were um, anti-Thatcher. Um, and he went, and because that was a fairly long period of time that um, she was in control of the country and in charge of the politics, he was in a position where within an institution like the BBC or employed by the BBC, continuing to make a great body of work, a lot of it about institutions, a lot about his um, take on how institutions can form opinions and can create monsters, even though some of those people are really quite extraordinary, talented uh, individuals themselves. It's the pressure of the outside world, the pressure of the controlling influences that Britain had over people at the time. And I would have to say that that's probably part of the makeup of Psy Warrior's contact, Elephant, in that this is the world we live in because we've allowed it to become this. And I think without becoming political about Northern Ireland, I think he, his, his, his own social politics were about observing things which were wrong, <clears throat> telling stories with other writers um, about things which needed attention. And yes, they were put into fictional in, environments, but mostly these were very bright, very um, conscientious people who were, who were angry. <clears throat> and um, whilst I never saw Alan angry, you can quite imagine that in in the back of his mind there were things that he always wanted to make stories out of, to create an opportunity for people to have a debate afterwards, which would bring up the very subjects that he had felt so strongly about. What's interesting to me, even just from this discussion, is um, that the 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 absolute necessity we have to narrativize yes. violence, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I mean, I'm coming into this with the assumption it's the troubles. I have to put a cause and effect to the violence, even though there is deliberately no cause and effect shown on the screen, and that's actually key to the presentation of the film. 
I have I come to this as a viewer and I have to put cause and effect around that and everybody else as I've, I've spoken to or, or sort of read uh, their response to the film they have to put cause and effect around it and you're mm. saying haven't you if you put said it in Colombia it becomes about um, about the drugs uh, war in Colombia just that it, it, yeah, we need nature. we need to kind of put that. We need to kind of say, well, this is why it happened. I suppose that's that's that uh, impulse towards safety. You know, if we understand why, if we have a definite reason why, then we can be safe. We can avoid the why and not become the person that's murdered. Um, which yeah, it's very. I don't Even know, though like both film, both elephants are very consciously about mm. yeah. uh, no, don't narrativize. Like yeah, this yeah. is just the thing that's very happening. specifically. You know, like I read somewhere. Um, just in a blurb or description before I watched this, that said it was about um, Republican internal feuds, internal yeah. killings. So yeah. that was just in my head when I was watching it, yeah. and I really wish I'd never read that. Yeah. Like, I want to show it to someone and not tell them anything. Just, yeah. about, just, just like, look at this. No, that was Michael Winterbottom's film. Yeah. That, was, that, was, <laughs> that was the precious blood. That was all about that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we do talk about how, I mean, certainly leading up to the peace process there's often talk about how you know the violence is senseless so senseless violence is really what that is so even in a troubles context it is the senselessness of it but you're quite right i mean this should this is a film that's actually about violence is not necessarily troubles although i cannot even saying that shift the idea of mm. this is about the troubles from my head yes um but I mean, it does bring us, you know this brings us back into the discussion of the other elephant mm. um which is gus van sant's which we now you know all the, all the reading you do about it it isn't about gun crimes in school necessarily it's a response to columbine which um was kind of yeah which again we kind of know it's a story that we know we think we know and it's about this, this the randomness of you know uh, the outsiders coming in amongst their peers and, and and gunning them all down um what do we feel about gus van sans elephant i'm not a fan um but I, I do admire his works. Um, I, I find it a, a really a, a mixture um, because we are allowed to interact with the individuals who, are, we, um, who have a, a life, but it is, it is a school life and, and they're involved on their rounds, having their social intercourse, doing their little bits of um, activity, whether it be going to the library, whether it be sports, whether it be photography. Our young man who we introduced to at the beginning of the film is introduced to through a moment of comedy and he is a survivor because <coughs> his dad's drunk and taking him to work and he's smashing the side of the car on, on, against another parked cars as he's driving to school it's an interesting way of introducing a film which is all about um, <coughs> uh, a, a vicious minded monster and his henchmen wandering through to the school to have fun <coughs> which is basically what he says remember to have fun and it because it, it introduces a sense to me not of normality but of abnormality um, that this is a damaged place and the only damage that I can see that really is there is with one or two of the individual okay well no, no I'm wrong and actually there's damage all the way through it because it's his drunken father it's the bulimic girls it's the <coughs> um, the bullied um, a sports person um, the photographer who, who only has one thing in his life and that's taking photographs and doesn't seem to have, he has friends but he just needs to take. There are a lot of individuals that we, we, we get to recognize as, and I, I suppose because they are considered to be odd, and they, they're, he is representing them as the norm and the oddest of them are the two killers. And I'm not sure 
what he's saying there? Is it that the society that in schools are all a bit crazy, uh, or are we are we particularly picking on the weaker points and then saying these are the ones who get killed? Because actually, although there's you know the the uh, the principal is shot brutally, um, uh, it's again a sense that he's introducing us to people that we either would not like to have as our friends and allowing the blonde nice guy to be you know a, a survivor because he doesn't really show any weakness he's just a dude um, but he's just he has a life where his dad's the you know, the difficult person and he has to cope with that so in some ways what it, it, it left me with the impression that crazy bad guys actually kill the weaklings it's like crocodiles and um, and at the waterhole. I'm not quite sure about the film because it, it's, it is brutal and it, particularly in the last act it, it, it really did affect me but I, I just wasn't sure about the characters in it. Um, yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. Um, I think for me it's a film that is trying to to say, well, there's no point in looking for answers um, to these questions, you know, while still desperately looking for answers to these questions. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's by filling in the backstory. Um, it's it's essentially again trying to say it's knowable. We just don't know it. Um, whereas I think that's it's it kind of for a film that was, you know, has such a, 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 a heavy debt of influence to Clark's film, it seems to kind of have missed where Clark's film was going with the sometimes there are no answers kind of message, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the, the problem with it is it tells us about them we, mm. we start to get an insight into their lives we start to care about the characters and we actually start to care about the guys who are going to perpetrate the murder you know we see them kind of having their their kind of homoerotic encounter in a shower and things it's like the, you know we start deciding okay so this is what's going on with their lives this is where their confusion is they've got no girlfriends they're not quite sure of their sexuality they're kind of slightly depressed they spend too much time watching these kind of movies and mm. checking out this stuff on the internet and we make those assumptions and so the, the shooting when it happens whilst it still has an impact doesn't have the impact that, that Clark's film does because it's mm. it's all being contextualised in a way that, that Clark's film doesn't Connor yeah um, I don't 100% agree I mean I when I was watching it I didn't feel um, like the characters were particularly damaged I mean they all have difficulties but I kind of felt like um, maybe I, I just seen many, too many American movies about high school the idea of bulimic girls in high school doesn't seem that normal to me um, and the, the the drunk dad and everything it it didn't really feel like they were weak or that they were uh, in some way being set up for what happened it just kind of felt like oh they have lives and they have things in their lives that aren't brilliant and they have problems um, but I, I actually I can see sort of um, the way I thought the film was going to be when I first saw it ages ago was um, uh Shattering of innocence, basically. Um, you know, this kind of totally just like school and everything's fine, and then a really horrible thing happens. Um, but rewatching it, the way that the chronology is kind of messed up um, makes it feel more and more like the really bad thing 
isn't just something that occurs at the end and that fundamentally changes the situation it's more it's almost like the bad thing becomes insidiously connected to everything else just because you have these interlocking stories and you, you know you might come up to a point in one story where one of the two shooters enters and then cut away and we're we go back sort of 20 minutes or something and then you lead up again and again and it feels harder to put the thing in a, a tighter chronology the idea of, of the backstory and then looking for answers I'm not sure about that I mean it feels like from what Van Sant was kind of saying at the time of release that he really wanted it to not be uh, an explanation film and there is kind of like they play video games and they are online looking at guns and they have that moment in the shower which really bothered me the first time I saw it because I thought it was oh you know the 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 unhinged queer shit of the school sort of thing but rewatching it's actually no it's just because they've never been kissed because they don't really get on with everybody else and it's not really it didn't it didn't feel homoerotic really at all to me um I think just their backstory felt it didn't really feel like it was going towards an explanation that much it felt like oh this could probably be really a lot of people's backstories um in some ways because the whole issue of the film is that when Columbine happened and the way it was um, told in the media and the way that certain myths uh, built over time, there's a fictitious mythic quality to it, you know. So I remember at the time, I knew the phrase trench coat mafia. <laughs> I don't really know much of what, why it was a phrase, but I knew it. And a lot of work's been done since Columbine <coughs> to unpack that and say, look, it's not these losers who were picked on by the jocks and then shot out out of revenge. You know, they had the shooting was almost incidental. You know, they had these massive propane bombs that they were going to explode in the cafeteria and kill hundreds, and the guns were there so they could just pick off people escaping. And the film, I like that the film does kind of have that, you know, the bombs don't go off, and the shooting feels like an afterthought almost. They're looking at their watches, they're like, well, I guess now we'll, we'll, we'll shoot a bit of people. Plan B. Is this Plan B, yeah. And when they meet up kind of at the end, there isn't a sense of victory or like oh they don't feel rushed by what they've done you know one of them just says oh i got the principal and got a couple of other and then the other one shoots them um so it's it's a bit kind of complicated there i like the idea of uh treating columbine in a way that is trying to just show the thing itself and not have the urge to explain mostly because the urge to explain when it comes to columbine was so obviously a misguided thing and, and ended up being a just standard conservative kind of moral panic about the state of teens today and I like that, that it feels to me that the film isn't that interested in, in kind of coming up with motivations etc that it's more about showing the thing itself but I I do sort of know what you guys are saying I mean I think part of the problem is that it, because we know that it was a response to Columbine that that's what you then it's the same problem we have with Alan Clark's Elephant is that you suddenly have a, an event that we think we know, not least because of Michael Moore's documentary, uh, Bowling for Columbine, you know, we, we think we know that story so we then make assumptions about them, we make assumptions about those characters, so even though it's not Columbine it is Columbine um, and what he borrows from Clark is the, sort of the long steady cam shots he borrows the title and then he doesn't really borrow it with the violence at the end, the violence is shot 
I don't know, it feels to me it's slightly more conventional. I, I feel that Vincent is slightly more conventional than Clark was. I think he wants to borrow the presentation of violence from Clark. I don't think he does it successfully. No. Um, I, I mean, like I was saying earlier, I think it is that sense of, you know, the, the elephant in the room, the ubiquity, the sort of the invisibility of violence around us that, that everybody's trying desperately to ignore until it can't be ignored anymore is, is for me, sort of the key take. Um, but, but yes, also that kind of visual presentation. Um, I don't know, I just, I think, for me, it's more about him want, it feels like it wants to present violence as, as you know, the roots of violence as being kind of unknowable, uh, like I said before, while still desperately trying to, to for me, what it's, it's more about is, is rejecting the, the, the media narrative mm. of the causes um, of, of uh, school shootings and trying to sort of say, well, okay, obviously it's more complicated than that, but still, at, at you know, when you get down to the level, I mean, this is the problem of, of narrativizing it, the, 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 the bleakness, the starkness of Clark's elephant is the, the obviously, as you've said, that complete lack of narrativization to it. Um, but, you know, when you start to look at Van Sant's elephant um, of necessity, the characters sort of fall into some very archetypal roles. Mm. So yes, you do have, you know, the the the, the sort of the the okay, I, I hate to use this word, but but that's I mean they're, they're basically the, the school bimbos who are, are obsessed with their appearance and obsessed with boys and are, are throwing up in the toilets and that's it's an archetype. It's it's a cipher. It's standing in for a wider sort of recognizable form that we know. Um, and again, you have the the jocks and you have the, the sort of the weirdos and the artsy ones and the the sort of this tiny little flicker of manic pixie dream girl sort of dances in and dances back out of frame again. I've no idea who she is or or what her contribution was to anything. Um, but yeah, it, I think it it wants to make the same point of Clark, but I don't think it's quite connected with what mm. Clark's doing mm. in, in that, that sort of really deeper sense. And I don't think it's intended to. I think I agree with you both. The borrowing is the title and very much some of the cinematic style and the use of the long tracking shots as Steadicam. I think the banality of the conversations that take place during the course of the film annoy me enormously because <laughs> they uh, uh, it, it's just too often that you're getting this lengthy, at least if you just have silence, <laughs> you you can't complain that people are talking rubbish. Mm. But there are too many conversations that I didn't enjoy in the film because it was attempting to make it normal, natural. This is what happens everywhere. This is how people respond. And it was because it was partly scripted, I suspect, and partly improvised, um, that it was awkward. And it didn't feel natural. Mm -hmm. And I know that with... Um, it's not a natural film in the sense that we do sh play with time all over the place, but in a sense it was supposed to give you a, um, a, the school environment as it would be for any student um, in an American school. At that. That's what I felt it was trying to show. And it was trying to do that also through the characters you met and the conversations that they had. And yet I still felt that what we were meeting with was a lot of awkwardness because I didn't feel that... It was tight enough for something which had a, a structure. I didn't think the dialogue was tight enough, and it was really only with the two kids, the, the killers, um, where I felt a little bit more comfortable about a relationship that was going on. Two two guys who were just sort of hanging out and um, and laughing at the adults and uh, having a sleepover, and then 
and then getting up in the morning and uh, having casual sex and killing people. So I didn't feel I, it was it was round about there. That's when I became engaged with the film. As soon as we introduced into that domestic environment, that's when I was interested, and that I wanted to know what was going to happen with um, from there on in. Before then, uh, I was annoyed. I guess uh, I mean looking back at the two films, um, there is I think some sort of commentary on violence and gun crimes, and, and basically both of them are really it's just about violence, although. With America's gun problems, you kind of can't help but read gun crime into everything that's done. Um, do you think they, they, particularly, let's go back to Alan Clark's Elephant as a kind of wrap up? Um, how do you feel it sits now? How do you feel its impact is now watching it 25, 26 years later? 27 years later? Good grief. 27 years after. Um, I suppose that. La- I mean, obviously, it's it's dated by some of the, the sort of the. the the clothes and the, the the cars and that, but of course because it isn't given any kind of specific context, it ages very very well. Um, you know, there's there's nothing besides the the visual presentation that specifically fixes that to any historical moment. And when you're talking about it, it's it's, it's a universal message, um, and that's I suppose what it's it's trying to convey is this universal message about um, yeah the, the brutality. You know, there's there's nothing. Um, romantic or or attractive or um, compelling about killing people. It's it's brutal and it's um, disturbing and it's difficult to 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 to, to watch as um, and in a way that you know when when cinema when television engages with violence that's not a presentation that we're accustomed to we we see sort of these very hyperkinetic editing angles and even well yeah, especially in the 80s actually when you think about the kind of product that's coming out of Hollywood and that have been very very visible at that stage the sexiness of violence that the kind of you know the 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 high octane track that goes with it I mean that that kind of stripping back that um, um, silence and, and, and complete decontextualization absolutely refuses to permit any kind of sort of adrenaline surge there apart from just being appalled by what you're seeing. Um, so that remains incredibly relevant and I suppose will continue to remain incredibly relevant depressingly enough because you know that the message just if anything you know the presentation of violence is becoming more and more cinematic and more and more um, sort of out, out competing for, for presentation of gore which still fails to be as disturbing as watching a man walk calmly into um, a, a factory and be shot in the head yeah I mean it, it has first of all a kind of formal purity that means it dates incredibly well like you said um, and y- you're right it's strange to watch violence in this form when you <laughs> I guess I watch so many blockbusters and uh, so many just kind of schlocky stuff you know every week at, at the multiplex and you become so accustomed to just the where the tropes that are used to make sure that the violence gives you like a feeling uh, you know you talk about adrenaline but it's so it's so caught up in uh, the action of the moment and of uh, victory and release and oh he's the good guy and he's got the bad guy and it, it's all kind of caught up in the, the sensation of, of, of story I guess um, which means that Clarkstone 
remains necessary as a kind of corrective or as a kind of moral um, opposite to really kind of clear away a lot of that clutter, that narrative clutter, and show you something that is a bit more sterile and a bit more close to life. What I find very interesting is it's a, this is an objective view um, that Alan is offering us in his um, 18 killings, and yet our response is one which is always subjective, and that's classic filmmaking, as opposed to allow mm -hmm. the subjectivity coming from the filmmaker, but putting it into the hands of the viewer. Um, extraordinary. At the time it was shot, we, as a group, behind the camera, were really rather alarmed about what we were doing. We were living in Ulster. We were going through daily processes, family, friends, and everything else, and of our very business uh, as being broadcasters was necessarily connected to the atrocities that had taken place and would continue to do so. And there was fear and there was, there was a sense of, um, is this what this filmmaker is judging us to be? So whilst we were interpreting his film as being a film about the Troubles. He wasn't, as I've made, he wasn't doing that. And as luck would have it, I happened to travel to London the night before, or the night it was broadcast. So I walked into Television Centre the following day and going up to the drama offices on the fifth floor. All the talk was about that film that Alan Clark had just made. And the conversation just went on for weeks. Um, there was a lot of obviously um, uh, quite a lot of critical um, noise about it at the time in, in the newspapers and, uh, and on television as well. And when I watched it on the television that night and whenever I was listening to other people talking about it, I, I began at that time to think we had made something that really was very important and it wasn't and what we had imposed upon it was just what the rest of the world was going to do year in, year out afterwards. And the funny thing was Alan Clark's archive, as you were talking about earlier on, was something that was, it's mostly televisual, so it gets seen once and it's put on a shelf. And that's why the great filmmaker, for most of um, the next decade and a half after his death um, in 1990, he was a talked about occasionally but forgotten about for his works apart from one or two and to have the whole canon of the work available is a really important addition to anybody's library and Elephant will be one of the ones that will be constantly remarked upon from for cinephiles and filmmakers in the future even though they might never have had the experience even up to now to have watched it. I do find it um, perhaps one of uh, you know it's a really beautiful a really filmic film um, I think it's arguably the most important film about the troubles, for me anyway, um, because of where it positions itself in terms of a narrative, of how it takes itself one step beyond, and gets beyond the the green and orange, which is you know such a still such an issue here. You know this this takes it somewhere else, and even if it wasn't about the troubles, it is about the troubles, and if it is about the troubles, it's not. And I love that kind of um, universality of it. It's a great film that needs to be seen, and you know again. So pleased the BFI are finally releasing this stuff because there's too much television has, has, has hidden away in great filmmakers that we haven't seen enough of. 
You've been listening to Cinepunked, Elephants, with Robert J.E. Simpson, Dr. Rachel Kelly, Connor Smith and Kevin Jackson. The sound was engineered by Ben Simpson and recorded in the Beanbag Cinema during the Belfast Film Festival. If you've enjoyed the show, do consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can catch up on the podcast and subscribe via your favourite podcast distributor or via our website www.cinepunked.com. We can also find out about our upcoming live events. You can also catch up with us and interact by searching for Cinepunked on Twitter and Facebook and we're Cinepunked Film on Instagram. Until the next time, I've been Robert J. Simpson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>